Hello, fellow space explorers, and welcome to the latest episode of The Art of Space Engineering, the podcast which aims to explore the details behind how spacecraft and various payloads come together before launch and the lessons learned along the way. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, and today's episode continues my mini-series on developing the Phoenix CubeSat, but it will explore our experiences related to structures design, flight integration, and handoff. So, of all of the weeks spent working on Phoenix, The week of flight integration was both the most stressful and exhausting week of my life. But it was also one of the coolest phases of the project, because when you go into flight integration, everything is final. This is it. This is your spacecraft officially coming together as the flight system that will soon be in orbit about the Earth. But because everything is final, it's also an incredibly stressful period where you need to make absolutely sure that you've checked all of the boxes before you close out the spacecraft and that you're well prepared for everything that you need to do regarding integration. So this episode will explore how Phoenix progressed from a CAD design to a fully integrated spacecraft. And we'll also throw in some of our stories from delivering Phoenix to NanoRacks in August of 2019. And hopefully these stories can provide some useful insight into structures development and systems integration for any listeners out there who might be interested in or are currently developing at CubeSat of their own and are curious on what other student teams have done in the past. So for this episode, similar to the episode on software development for Phoenix, this interview features a roundtable discussion between myself and a few of my very good friends from the team as we recount our experiences. So today I'll be joined by Jaime Sanchez de la Vega, who was our chief engineer and structures lead, and Vivek Chaco, who not only developed the flight software, but also helped the flight assembly and then went on with me to our delivery adventure. So this discussion covers several different topics. So to capture everything, I ended up splitting this episode up into two parts. So in this episode, we will discuss how we went about designing and machining the structure and the lessons we learned as we iterated on it. It also includes our experience on developing a system assembly procedure and the things that we had to look out for along the way. Part two includes stories from flight integration, vibe, and delivery. It also features our infamous story on how Phoenix's launch date was saved by capped on tape. So that is one of my favorite stories from Phoenix by far. So that episode is highly recommended. In case you haven't heard about Phoenix before, Phoenix is a CubeSat, or a bread loaf-sized satellite, which was developed by a student-led team at Arizona State University. Now, the mission was mainly dedicated to educating students on space mission design, but there was a secondary mission objective to collect thermal images of different U.S. cities to study the urban heat island effect. Uh, And the urban heat island effect is a phenomenon where the urban area is much warmer than the surrounding rural outskirts. And these rising surface temperatures lead to increased energy consumption, which in turn creates more pollution and contributes to heat waves. I was incredibly fortunate to serve as the project manager and a systems engineer on Phoenix and take it from the proposal phase through development and into operations. So Phoenix got started in the fall of 2015 when we wrote a proposal to NASA's undergraduate student instrument project, which aimed to provide funded opportunities for students to develop science payloads for either Earth or space research, and consequently gain more experience in their field. In the summer of 2016, we received word that our proposal was selected. From there, we worked on the spacecraft until it was delivered to NanoRacks in August of 2019, and subsequently launched in November of that year. More recently, Phoenix was deployed into orbit as of February 2020. A bit more of a background on the spacecraft itself, since we had the budget for it, almost all of the hardware was commercial off-the-shelf products. 
as this would increase reliability, reduce risk, and allow us to focus more on just putting everything together and making sure that the system was very robust. So our main job was to understand how the hardware worked and integrate everything together both mechanically and electrically, as well as develop the flight software that would allow Phoenix to do everything that it needed to do in orbit to complete its mission objectives. Now, I won't go into depth on all of the components that we used, but if you're interested in how Phoenix was designed, then I strongly encourage you to visit our website, and I will put a link to that in the description below. So that gives you a pretty rough but decent enough introduction into Phoenix to where you can kind of understand what the background was, and I promise we'll describe things a lot more in detail during the actual conversation. So with that, let's segue into the interview and learn a lot more about our experience with structure development, flight integration, and delivery. Thank you both for joining me to recount both loving and woeful memories of developing Phoenix. So it's actually kind of funny that part of what we're talking today is flight preparation since basically like a year ago to the day was when we were, this is basically where we were with Phoenix. Like on July 4th, a year ago, I was babysitting hardware in the bakeout chamber as we prepared for flight integration. So, um, so this is, this is a really kind of a cool, um, Anniversary? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like commemoration. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Isn't that kind of isn't that weird to think about though? Like, it was just a year ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. That's not right. You know, till till you didn't point this out, I did not realize this. But all of a sudden, now it hits me like a rock. <laughs> but yeah, it's been it's been a year, and yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. So. Going off of that, before we get going with the discussion, uh, I thought let's let's just start by getting to know you guys a little bit better. So why don't we just go around and have you state your name, your role in the project, how you got involved, and then what you're working on now that Phoenix has been delivered. And whomever wants to be the first victim can start. Go for it, Jaime. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> My name is Jaime Sanchez de la Vega. And before I get started, I just want to say it's a pleasure to be here today. Um, to the future listeners who may be listening to this, um, I don't know, Sarah, Vivek, they're, they're awesome people. If you want to get the spacecraft done, talk to them. It's awesome. <laughs> so um, let's see. Oh, my, my official title on, on the Phoenix project was the chief engineer. But a lot of the work I did was on the structure itself. I led the development of the structure and did a lot of work into figuring out how to fit the different Lego Tetris pieces together in this constraint box that we have that it measures 10 by 10 by like 34 centimeters. How I got involved in Phoenix, I was there right from the start. Back when it was a crazy, a crazy idea, I, I joined the, propo- uh, the proposal team and then it just came pro- from a proposal to an actual uh, satellite. And that was a crazy journey to experience. It's something, I, don't, I think one of the proudest things I've, one of the things I've done that I'm the most proud of for sure. <laughs> I graduated from Arizona State University um, a year ago. And so since then, I've been working also at, at ASU uh, as an engineer for the new interplanetary initiative lab, which is, by the way, an awesome place. <laughs> and that, that's what I've been doing. All right, Vivek, you are I next. I go next. Victim. All right, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Vivek Chakul, 
And um, I joined uh, Phoenix project quite late into, you know, I wasn't there for like the proposal phase and stuff, but uh, I joined towards the end in like late December, 2018. Uh, although I joined late, I got to be, uh, you know, I got to take part in a lot of uh, pretty important stuff and meet a lot of nice people. So it was, it was a really good experience. I mainly worked in software. So uh, getting the spacecraft to speak to the ground station was one of the main, main tasks that I tackled. So yeah, that's, that's me. Uh, I did graduate from Arizona State as well uh, this May, in fact, recently. And now I'm joining you know, the corporate life, <laughs> so to speak. But um, yeah, definitely, I think out of all the projects I've done, nothing even comes close to the fact that uh, I was in college and I built a spacecraft. It was, it was definitely a, an out-of-the-world experience, pun intended. <laughs> so one thing that I do want to point out to our listeners about you, Vivek, is that even though you were mostly oriented on the flight software side, like you helped finish out the flight assembly of the spacecraft um, and were with me for delivery. And so that's how you're relevant to this conversation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's I mean, that's important too. So. That's that's actually uh, something which I you know I think was the beauty of this entire endeavor was the fact that I did join a software, but eventually you know this this is something which I tell a lot of people that it was so hands on and you know like even flight uh, integration delivering it uh, all that was also something you know I think Judd came to me and he was like uh, Vivek you need to go and help out with this so I was like yes on board. <laughs> So definitely, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Those are both very lovely introductions. Uh, and so, so since we've all had various experience with taking Phoenix from uh, a CAD design to a fully integrated spacecraft, I wanted to explore all of that within this episode as we recount the design, development, assembly, and then the the lessons learned throughout the entire process. So, given that, uh, I figured let's just start off at the beginning with discussing the design and development of the structure. Now, since CubeSats do have a standard form factor, they are just as there are electrical components that you can purchase off the shelf for all of your CubeSat needs, you can also purchase the CubeSat structure. So I remember when we wrote the proposal, we were actually going to buy one. We were going to buy the ISIS 3U structure. And then when we received funding and went back and looked at the design again, we kind of played around with this idea a little bit more of, well, you know, should we buy one? Should we make one? And then for several reasons, we ultimately decided to just make our own and that because that was the best approach, both in terms of cost and, and utility. Um, so Jaime, since you became our structural magician, uh, I figured let's start off with you and recount the background behind the structure as uh, so why we decided to make our own in the first place and then how the design process progressed from there to make the structure what it is now. I think I'm going to update my resume to include structural magician in there. <laughs> yeah, do it. <laughs> um, that, that's, a really, that's a fantastic question. And that's something that comes up to any team or person working on a technical project. And it's like, well, should I develop, make this, or should I just buy it? And that's a question that we had to go through for every single subsystem in Phoenix, um, including the structure. Um, specifically, the structure, we <laughs> decided to make it in-house. And there, there were a couple of factors that went to that decision. Uh, but uh, a big one that it, it should be mentioned is that it, 
the level of like, or how should I say this? Uh, with the current team we had uh, that, that was working on the project and the resources we had available, it seemed feasible and possible to do a structure where um, design and build a structure. Whereas that was not necessarily the case uh, for an attitude control and determination system and ADCS unit. Uh, that was outside of the scope, completely more difficult, like a different beast altogether. So a structure, I mean, in the end, it's a, <laughs> it's a piece of aluminum that has been machined to, to the right size. So sure, it's not a piece of cake to build one, but it's certainly easier than building an attitude determination control unit at ADCS. So um, of course, there's always um, there's pros and cons to buying uh, versus uh, developing your own. And with developing your own, you need to well, spend this, a lot of time and effort, energy of your engineering team in making and developing the system. Um, but you get to control what it looks like, what it, uh, um, what it does, uh, how it's like, designed. And with a structure, or like, you know, <laughs> an official structure, they, you get what you get. It's like, if it has a hole here, it has it. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And, with Phoenix and uh, we needed to have an aperture here. And then on the X side, we needed to have a window for the ADCS uh, Earthling sensor. There were specific cutouts and shapes that we needed that were not necessarily available on the structures that were available off the shelf. Every mission is different and, mission, and Phoenix had its own uh, requirements that we would have needed to modify an off the shelf structure, which kind of defeats the purpose of buying one in the first place because you, you don't want to spend time developing it. So was we'll it well? Let's just make it, and it it was a it it was a great decision. It allowed it gave us a lot of flexibility and control in, in on our design. Yeah, no, that's that's all of those are really great points to make. Um, yeah, I, I remember like the realization that we had with with that and realizing that you know we'd have to make so many modifications to this thing in order for it to actually serve our purpose. So let's just make our own. I do want to explore the design process itself and, and how you eventually arrived at the, the rail and panel design that we have today. Because I, I know that you spent many laborious hours over it. I think it's a really good idea to, when possible, design from first principle. In our case, what, what our first principle uh, was is like, well, we're given these requirements from our launch provider. Um, in, in this case, Nanorex, they say, well, this satellite has to, it's a CubeSat, so it has to fit in this box. We were given this document, uh, the interface control document that says, well, it has to have this mass, the center of gravity has to be here. These are the widths, the materials, uh, everything. Um, a bit really uh, complete description of what the system can and cannot be, at least on, uh, on, a me on the mechanical side. And of course, that document also includes important uh, electrical requirements, but it really tells you everything you need to know to build the structure, at least um, the, the outside of the structure. On the inside and how you place your components, there's a lot of flexibility and that's where you can get a little bit creative. You're given um, a set of constraints and then it's up to the designer, the engineer to decide, well, how am I gonna uh, solve this? So really um, we start from like those fix things that we cannot change. We have this set of requirements from Nanorax. It's like, okay, they have to have this shape. This isn't the materials allowed and the finishes and those things. And then we, we go on to the next step. But what is the next thing that we cannot change? We knew at the time our payload. So now we know 
okay, we need a payload. So the payload has um, a camera lens that was her payload. Uh, it has the outer diameter that is X millimeters and this shape, and we had the cut models for it in the actual unit. And so we start designing around those and designing around uh, the CubeSat, um, uh, the CubeSat electronic boards from the electronic stack we built. Uh, those, we, we had those available too. So we started designing around those combining things and eventually we arrived <laughs> into a, a design. And I do have to say it's a very iterative process and that's something really important. I cannot stress enough <laughs> the importance of an iterative design uh, process where you make a version one of your structure. And really this applies to many subsystems, but you have first version of the structure and then you make it better, but you have to like, get something done first. And so uh, I, I made a structure in CAD. Uh, we specifically use SOLIDWORKS, but really you can use any CAD software uh, that you have available. And so we designed a structure and sure enough, it didn't work. It, 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 was, it, didn't, it did not meet every requirement, but we got like say 50% of the way there. And then we made a version 1.1 and a version 1.2 and a version 1.3. And we kept getting better, better and better, slowly creeping towards meeting all of the requirements. And then I think the validation process of part of what kept this design cycle iteration process going um, is like, sure, you're designing versions, but you want to make sure they're getting better somehow. You need to have some kind of metric. And for us, a lot of it was, well, can we like actually integrate this thing? We started with 3D prints. Uh, we were using a 3D printer that we had on campus. So we had assigned this, uh, these rails and these brackets and these panels. We 3D printed them and we assembled them. And sure enough, we found interferences. And so, okay, well, next, next version, uh, we uh, fixed that interference. And sure, that we fixed that one, but then we found another one later on. And as we got closer and closer to the uh, finished assembly, to the finished product, uh, we were uh, fixing those little details until we were getting better. Yeah, definitely. And I think the using, using 3D printing and laser cutting for, for our models definitely definitely helped a lot. And um, one thing I, I guess I, we should stress in this episode is that 3D printing doesn't always show you everything. So one example that, that we had from this was uh, with our EPS, the CAD model made it look like there was going to be an, an interference of a capacitor with the, the top of, we had an S-band transmitter uh, incorporated into the, into the design at the time. And it, the CAD model made it look like there was an interference between the the shield over the the RF electronics and the and the EPS and when you actually looked at the hardware itself that capacitor wasn't even there so I, I guess the moral of the story is that 3D printing gets you a very long way it, it gets you a tremendously long way and it's also very lucrative because when you're assembling 3D printed models you don't have to worry about ESD control um, it's very easy to put things together and then take them apart and you don't have to be super careful with them but it does not tell you everything at the end of the day. It's, it's important to, once you actually get engineering model hardware and you can start putting that together, it's really important to just do that as, as soon as possible with the, anything that you've actually machined. I, I think you're, you're alluding to some really, really, really important points there. <laughs> and it's like, you have to understand the limitations of the tools you're using. Um, a big one with mm -hmm. printing is the dimensional accuracy of, of course, depends on the printer. But it's, uh, it's always it's on the order of millimeters. It can be plus or minus millimeters. And a specific problem we had is um, when we were doing these mock assemblies uh, with 3D printed components, 
we were seeing that the rails were bowing out. They were like, like the, the external dimensions, they were like just completely out of spec outside of the level of tolerances. But the reason was, well, the 3D printed component you have on the inside out one is larger than it should be by like a full millimeter. So it's pushing the rails out. And the, the other very important point is that you really cannot trust, just like, just like you cannot trust a 3D printed model, or like you have to take it with a grain of salt. Uh, you cannot trust CAD all that much, even if it's given to you by the vendor. Like CAD is incorrect. The hardware you have in hand, that is king. Like it doesn't matter what the CAD says. It doesn't matter what the data sheet says. Hardware, like the physical measurement of the device you have in your hands, that is what matters in the end. And we did run into, run into some issues because we uh, sometimes designed uh, based on CAD or data sheet measurements, and that's what we had available at the time. But when you get the, the hardware in hand, well, it turns out it's actually a full millimeter larger, or it's actually uh, out of spec uh, comparison to, to the things you thought they were. So, you know, at JPL, they do say, test as you fly. And, and I, I do want to say here is like, you want to assemble as like you're with your flight hardware as much as you can. You want to get as real as possible. Going off of that, one of the more notable dis discrepancies that we found at least between CAD versus actual hardware was like the batteries. Um, they had a very slight bulge in the middle because of the lithium ion cells. And that was not something that showed up in CAD. So I, to give you a picture of where these were in Phoenix and, and what, what issue this caused. So we had our ADCS basically at the, the top of the structure. And then immediately below that, there was a, a top bracket, uh, which kind of helped hold the e-stack or electronic stack, all of our um, main CubeSat bus hardware together and then bolt that into the structure. And then directly beneath that bracket, there was the battery. And that bracket sat slightly above the battery to where you know we were minimizing volume, but we weren't creating any issues during uh, during launch and you know vib with vibrations. Um, and because of that bulge, we ended up having to raise that. We had to kind of shift the whole electronic stack and um, basically add a, a few more millimeters of space there to make sure that there was enough clearance between the battery and, and the bracket. And one nice thing about at least the, the PC-104 header on CubeSat hardware is that there's uh, a range at, of which you can, uh, you can insert your, the electrical pins into the, the, the top of the PC-104. So you can kind of play around with where your hardware goes um, if, if you run into issues like that later on, you can kind of just lower it like a, a little, a millimeter and then increase your standoffs your, or your rails, whatever you're using by that much. Um, so we were, we were lucky in that like it still worked. We didn't have to redesign the structure or anything because that was found after we'd machined everything. But yeah, that's, that was definitely one of the key discrepancies between CAD and, and hardware. That's a really it's, good example of a time that when I designed that part of the structure, I did it based on what the data sheet says and what the CAD model said that the, get, the, the vendor gave to us. And, it's, and I just trusted them. I believed them. And, <laughs> and then, you deceit. know, <laughs> it was deceit. And it, it was foolish at, at the time. Um, I, I was less experienced. I, it never occurred to me. Well, first of all, we didn't get the, the, the flight hardware until much right. later on. But even when we got it, um, it didn't occur to me to actually go with the calipers and measure them uh, until like a, a significant amount of time had uh, passed. And it was then when uh, we were doing an assembly. 
So I, have, I want to say quickly, it's like with the, like in CAD, there was no issue. And then with, so with the three printed builds, there was no issue there. But when we try to do a more, um, a more accurate, uh, closer to reality uh, assembly with uh, using flight hardware, we realized, hey, there's like, this doesn't fit, what's going on? And when we actually took the measurements with the calipers, we found out, well, this is like a full millimeter, like larger than it should be. And that led to some pains uh, because we designed based on data sheet and CAD, which often you have to do because that's all you have. But you have to understand like, well, there's, there's risks that come to that. And there's risks uh, like things might not fit exactly. And uh, a good strategy that we were able to solve it there was uh, playing around with the, uh, with the height of the standoffs. But uh, sometimes what we had to do is actually go and take these brackets and parts of the structure back to the machine shop and then just with a hand mill uh, drill extra holes or extra depth to the parts to remove those interferences. No, it's, it's, it's actually very important points, you know, like I will just reiterate two things that you guys said, and it reminds me of one thing. So one being the fact that, you know, the entire uh, design process is very iterative and the fact that, you know, you need to keep making changes as you go. And I specifically remember this one case where pretty towards the end, you know, we had an issue with the RBF. Now the issue was that the uh, pin was a little too wide and it, you know, we could not like fit it in. But uh, you remember that, sir, right? Yeah, no, actually, I think you're talking about the DC charging port. You're talking about when we had to sand. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, sorry, yeah, that was sorry, the DC sorry, charging sorry, port. Sorry. So the DC charging port, it just did not fit in like earlier. So what we had was initially we had the entire stack without the uh, panels. So it was very easy to, you know, plug in the DC charging port and make everything work. It was only after we sort of put all the panels together that we realized that, oh, the charging port doesn't fit. And that was pretty late. I think it was very close to uh, when we had the vibe. Uh, so, so we're like, what do we do? Because at that point, we reached this, uh, you know, it was very critical that we could not uh, change the dimensions of the hole, because that would, you know, ruin a lot of the coating that was there on the panels and stuff like that. Uh, so eventually, what we had to do is just use a Dremel tool and we were left with barely the, uh, you know, the electrodes and a little bit of plastic. So, you know, sort of uh, insulates everything. Well, that was my fault. Sorry, I didn't make the DC charging. <laughs> <big enough. laughs> Blame the structural engineer. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was very often that when issues arrived with other subsystems, um, it, it's always a trade-off. It's like, okay, who, who gets to fix right. it? I think the most important bit here is that, you know, you cannot anticipate every single uh, issues that might arise towards production. Things so often these new uh, issues and challenges keep coming up and you have to improvise, I think. And continuing on with just playing around with all of the interfaces as, as early on as possible, um, I would say one of the most important things to, to check when you're doing that is also your cabling. So making dev cables as soon as possible and actually trying to put things together. That is really going to reveal a lot about how your assembly procedure is supposed to come together. And it's also going to reveal to you any, you know, maybe some potential interferences that you could experience or, um, you know, issues with bend radii uh, of, of your cables. You know, for, for us, the thing that we experienced, there's, there's a, f a few millimeters of space between the edge of your hardware and the panel. 
And you know, that's really just kind of a factor in, in the CubeSat design. Um, that's, there's just so little volume in there. And so with cabling, you really have to be careful that you're, you're leaving enough room for there to be a, a decent amount of, of bend radius so that way you're not squishing your cables. So going off of the theme of just assemble as, as soon as possible, it's not only assemble as soon as possible, but make sure that you're, when you're assembling, you're using as many flight interfaces as possible. So the example that I, I want to share here is we actually ended up having an interference issue with our GPS antenna cable and our payload in which the, uh, the actual like SMA connector ended up colliding with the, the core of, of our camera. And we caught that very late in the process. Uh, we, we caught that like basically during flight integration. And the reason for that was because all of the, the so practice assemblies had been done with all of the flight hardware, but our, our EM GPS and our FM GPS had different RF connectors. So our EM had a straight connector and the FM had an angled connector. And so, when I was going through this, this practice assembly, I accidentally used the EM for, for one of our final ones uh, instead of the FM. So I never, I never caught that before we actually went into the flight integration phase, and I, I never had time to actually go back and retry the assembly procedure with the flight model GPS. Because I mean, one thing that you really don't realize is that even though CubeSats, even though they're small, they take hours to assemble. It takes hours for you to like actually screw in everything and put the whole thing together. There's still a lot that goes into those, especially when you're plugging in cables and you're integrating all of your components and making sure that it meets your metrology requirements along the way. Um, and so, so that interference was something that, that we didn't catch. And during flight integration, we go to, to mount the, the GPS antenna cable and we notice that interference. And that actually uh, led to a very lovely story where we had to disassemble everything and then move the GPS antenna down by a few millimeters in like in the lab using um, the, the machining, the very like minimal machining equipment that we had in there. Um, and that was an absolute nightmare. I'm, I'm so glad you were there for that high mate because I think if I found that I would have just cried. <laughs> I would have just like, like flipped a table and, and broken down. Um, so Basically, moral of the story, assemble as, as close to flight as possible. And if you miss a flight interface, it doesn't matter how long it takes, go back and make sure that you've checked that box because that, if, if you did miss something, that can really, really hurt you. End of long rant. <laughs> well, I, I think it, it really shows that, I, I, I think when working on a CubeSat or any other technical project like this, it is not that every, like any single step is like really hard. It's just like there's so many things you have to think about and keep track of, and it's just like the details. That's that's what gets you. It's like you really need to pay a lot of attention to those little details because missing one of them, they can hurt you uh, big time later on. That's one of the problems when you have a like a small team of these like students um, organization and those things. And well, I don't know, Sarah, you know all about this for sure. <laughs> No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely if if you're doing any kind of practice assembly, like pay attention, really, really pay attention and take notes. Because I think like every time 
like I, I tried assembling something like, you know, you just don't just do it once with all of your flight interfaces and say, yeah, you know, I did it. And there are a couple of things and, and now I'm done. Like do it multiple times, like really, really get used to what it's like to put the whole thing together and, and pay attention when you're doing it because you might find something new every single time. And if you have the human bandwidth, oh God, if you have additional people, have someone looking over your shoulder and taking notes and, and looking for things. And, and that will definitely help along the way as well. Um, so uh, going back to the design really quick, one thing that like I've been asked before is like, how did we know how did we know to use the nano racks? So before we were even manifested, because when you're designing something and you're proposing it, for example, you don't actually, you know, you don't know if you'll be selected, but you still need to, you still need to, to have a very thorough design that meets some sort of requirements. And there's the CubeSat standard that you can go by and then the NanoRacks interface deployer. And I remember in the beginning, like we were confused on, you know, you know, which which do we use? I don't remember which one we initially designed to. Wasn't it the the CubeSat standard, and then eventually switched? Or that, that is correct. Uh, at the very beginning, we were going off by the CubeSat standard, and then uh, switch up to the uh, NanoRx ICD. So I I think for the most part, though, and maybe this is a wrong assumption, but if you're at least a CubeSat that is aiming for an ISS orbit. Um, and you're planning to be deployed from the ISS orbit, and you're confused on, okay, do you know, do I go with the CubeSat standard requirements or the NanoRacks requirements? Because both are very similar, but they do have like very slight differences. I think, wasn't it the, the CubeSat standard was a little bit more like strict in some areas than the NanoRacks requirements were? There was a lot more uh, like, like leeway in terms of mass and dimensions, I, I think, if I recall correctly. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, that that is uh, correct. So both both <laughs> both documents, both are like technical documents, requirement documents that describe uh, what a CubeSat is. Uh, but they come from different places and they have different um, purposes. And that, that's something we didn't uh, know uh, back then. Uh, for in particular, the maximum mass uh, and the CubeSat standard is different from the maximum allowable mass on the Nanorax. Uh, CubeSat deployer, single CubeSat, double, single and double CubeSat deployer um, ICD. And that, that can lead to come to some confusions like, oh, which one do I did, um, design to? And for the CubeSat standard, it really is more like the CubeSat suggestion. <laughs> and uh, it's important to understand like where these documents come from and like how the world of CubeSats have been has been evolving uh, really. Like it used to be where uh, all CubeSats were just mounted in, in in the P-Pods and like that's like next to the uh, to the rocket and there's like people just like bolted there next to the engine or something just like shoots them out. But then Nanorex came in and they have this uh, this nice option of all, you can just send them from to, uh, to the ISS and deploy them from the little really awesome uh, deployer um, spring cannon gun they have there. And so that, that, that was not available later on. But the, the CubeSat standard, it's for the PPOT specifically, and then the NanoRacks is just specifically for those missions going through the ISS with the NanoRacks um, deployer. So which one should you, uh, and I have to say there's more, there, there's like a lot more uh, standards, uh, like because every company has their own deployer and their own standard and like may or may not be the same. They have like, there's small differences. So I think Mostly, if you design for one, like you're almost okay 
on everything else for the others because they, there's like a lot, a lot of overlap. It's like just like very little details where you want to make sure uh, like you, you're in the clear. And of course, there's always the possibility of getting waivers, uh, at least for some things, um, if like they're like slightly out of spec, but it would still work. Um, so in the end, the design, like the one you have to absolutely like abide by and like work with is with the people who are launching you. If you're going to the ISS with Nanorex, then you have to follow the, nan the Nanorex CubeSat uh, Deployer ICD. It doesn't matter what the CubeSat standard says or what the ISIS uh, standard says or any any anyone else is like you have to follow the people who put in rocket there they, they're giving you a ride so you better follow their rules <laughs> right and that's that's a very good point all right uh continuing on with more of the design side of things so i was trying to recount like how we actually went about figuring out where things go and i feel like maybe this came more from the proposal phase because um, I remember like standing in front of a whiteboard for hours, just like with all of us figuring out, okay, like how do we want to actually put all of these things in here? Um, in the end, everything seemed so, you know, everything seemed like, oh yeah, well, like, of course we're going to put the batteries on top and, uh, and you know, the payload at the bottom. Um, but I, I guess I, you know, I actually don't know. Jaime, did you end up like playing around with component placement a lot with that? Or did we kind of just like settle on this is the general like order of, of hardware? That's a really good question. And I'm trying to think back to when we were just starting. And I think like the, the hardest part is like, well, how do I even start? Like, should the battery be on top? Should like the camera be pointing this way? It starts with this like nebulous cloud of confusion and uncertainty. Like, oh, I don't even know what I don't know. And then by the end, like somehow you get to a stage where like, of course it is that way. There's no other way it could be. <laughs> and that process, it's, it's really hard to describe. And it seems to arrive from having these engineering discussions in meetings and where like all the stakeholders, the different subsystems um, talk about what they care about. And then it's like kind of reach a uh, consensus together. And really this, um, this conversation is framed by the constraints you have uh, the, in, in designing for first principle. It's like, well, we know uh, at the time, like for Phoenix was a bit of an inter interesting case because it really was a mission in, in some ways designed around the payload capability we have. Uh, so we knew we were going to be using this camera. And so, well, that, that already like gives you a lot of constraints that you can start like working around. So well, for example, like we know the camera is this size and that takes about half of the CubeSat. So like we know we have to put everything else on the other half of the CubeSat. How you place it though, that um, there's like many different uh, people who have opinions on that and for very valid reasons and differing opinions too. Like the thermal team may want something, but the ADCS team wants something else and the integration person wants something completely different. And it's like always finding this balance of what is the solution that works the best for most people because you're never going to find something that is ideal for most. Like sometimes something, uh, doing something good for thermal hurts the structure or vice versa. So you have to find like an, something that is like at least acceptable <laughs> To the most people uh, that meets the requirements, the mission requirements in the end. I remember a big, uh, like at least a trade uh, we had is like, well, do we place the attitude control and determination system uh, yes. at the very end? So like, um, if you visualize like the, the loaf of bread, you can bolt the, 
ADCS unit, which is about the size of a hamburger. It's a half use. It's like a, a five centimeters by 10 by 10. Like a nice hamburger. Really expensive hamburger, but really capable one too. <laughs> Very delicious. Do you bolt it out at the end or like do you try to place it in the middle? And it's like, well, there's pros and cons to both. Um, and there's like really no uh, no clear solution at the very beginning. And like, oh, well, which one you should do? Uh, for example, it is better for the ADCS system itself to be right in the middle, but it makes cabling, it can make cabling a nightmare or it can make, uh, well, really it is a cabling. <laughs> the ADCS had these like very tiny, like little slits and we, we were able to get like our, so we had the antenna up there, the RF cable, the data cable for the UHF antenna and the sun sensor, we were able to get all of those like through those, but it was still, it was still kind of, you know, it was still kind of hard to do that. So yeah, <laughs> cabling definitely would have been a nightmare. And it is very important to consider cabling like as early as long as you can, because um, I mean, cables, they're often not captured in CAD. Um, and they like, well, they, but they do exist, you know, cables do have physical size and mass and like they can cause interferences and make your design not work. Yeah, I remember we were like, we were tossing around the idea of like doing a cabling CAD bottle and with like SolidWorks has that capability, but it's, um, it, it's like you have, to, we, ha we would have had to have made every connector and then every, like the wire links for every cable. And even then, it still doesn't show you in full what it's like to actually plug something in on one end and then on the other. So all of our cables were kind of up against the, the, the 3U panels because all of the connectors were on the sides of the boards. And so if you made a cable too short, you couldn't plug it into the connector. If you made the cable too long, then it would kind of come up, loop back down, and then go into the connector. And so in that case, now you've got two kind of like pinch points. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but it, it loops around twice. And in that case, you could be stressing the cable a bit more. So um, that was the, another place where, where our 3D printed models came, uh, came really in handy. And it, and it wasn't just 3D printed. We, we laser cut them too. Jaime, you had a, a re the really great idea of um, using the laser cut boards. I don't know if you want to describe that more since, since that was like your, your brainchild. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I do want to give a quick comment on, on what you're saying. And is that with Phoenix, we made the decision not to capture the actual physical cables and wires between components in the CAT model. We decided to just do that uh, with physical hardware. And there's advantages and disadvantages of that. It's always a, a trade. But so what, what we did is we made, um, of course, different iterations, but we started with a 3D printed model and then 3D printed and laser cut hardware, um, like electronics. I think it was a really good idea from the team was to like, well, why don't we make like this uh, physical things that we can hold uh, by laser cutting the PCBs, um, like out of acrylic or some other material that at least has the same external dimensions. Sure, it's not a real battery, but it has the shape of the real battery. And then you can start making these mock assemblies. And you can start one, figuring out the cable lengths, which is really important, but really important in something that is hard to do in CAD, is like you can think about the human, like actually assembling these things. It's like you can, it's, it's very possible that you design something in CAD that sure, there's no interferences, the wire fits, the cable like mates, everything is fine. But like actually going and holding like 3D printed and laser cut and like just like mock assemblies, 
where you realize like, hey, a human actually needs to connect this cable and like your hand cannot go in there. It's like not physically possible. Maybe you need a, a specific tool to do that or something, but it's something really important to think about and that having something to hold in your hand that like there's like no uh, substitute to that. And when possible, it should be done. Yeah. And, and with the laser cut boards too, like we, from DigiKey, we bought all of the actual connectors that were supposed to go on these boards and we glued them all in. And that's what really allowed us to like connect everything together and actually plug in cables. Um, and if you're just 3D printing hardware, you don't have the capability to do that because there's nowhere to actually, like you can't actually plug the cable into the, like the 3D printed connector. So that was definitely like significantly helpful in, in designing an assembly procedure and just figuring out the cable lengths, which was also a nightmare in itself. <laughs> I remember, I remember when we got our flight cables. Uh, so, so we, we developed our uh, engineering model harnessing. This, this was never plugged into hardware. It was just used for figuring out the cable lengths because uh, we didn't have the actual, um, uh, crimpers. So we just used, we literally just used pliers, uh, ribbon cable, and then the proper connectors and, and crimps for those connectors. And just kind of roughly estimated the, the general lengths of the, of the cables. And then we bought our actual flight harnessing because we wanted those to be as absolutely as robust as possible. And I remember the day that those came in the mail and it was like, they were pristine and gorgeous. And they were like the most beautiful thing that I'd ever seen because they were amazing and I didn't have to make a single one of them. And it was, it was just lovely. Um, so yeah, d definitely like if, if you are developing uh, a CubeSat of your own, that this is really important. So kind of coming off of design, so now we're coming on to like the fabrication side of things, getting everything machined was definitely an adventure as well. I don't know if you want to recount your all of your stories from those adventures of when you guys went to, to, to Bracket Aircraft Company in Kingman for, what was it, spring break, and just stayed in there for days and machined our engineering model and, and flight components? Yeah. Um, turns out you can design something in CAD, but somebody actually has to build it. <laughs> it was fun. It was, it was a, it's a really good learning opportunity. In, at the time at ASU, we actually had a hard time getting access to a CNC mill that the students could use. There's plenty of CNC mills at ASU, uh, but you have to pay somebody to machine it for you, like the actual instrument machine shop. Uh, at least at the time that we were uh, making the, uh, the CubeSat, the project. So uh, we, <laughs> we didn't have the money or the resources. So we, it was the students who we just wanted access to a CNC mill that we wanted to go and do it. And now I have to say, we couldn't just do it on a normal uh, non-CNC mill, like a normal mill, because the geometry, it was too complex. Uh, it's not, sure, CubeSats are cubes, but like, it's not just like a block of aluminum. There's like complex radii and features that you really don't, cannot do by hand. <laughs> it's like, it's not doable. At least, I mean, not with the design we had. <laughs> so we need access to a machine, uh, machine shop. And um, a member of her team, Alex, Alex Schneider, uh, he was able to get us access to a machine shop uh, where he worked in, in, in Kingman, Arizona. And we're in Tempe, Arizona. So it's like a couple hours away. And we um, 
group of wonderful people at, at Bracket Aircraft Company and Bracket uh, <laughs> that I, I'm just really thankful for them to them um, for them using allowing us to use this uh, UNC. It's, it's just like awesome. I'm really thankful for them. They made Phoenix at least the structure happen. So uh, thank you to them if they ever listen to this. It's like I I cannot give them enough thanks. So we went, uh, me and Alex, and we drove to Kingman and spent like a week there making Phoenix uh, and just like turning this CAD into like a physical piece of aluminum you can hold. And it's, it's a complex process uh, trying to machine them because you, it's like the art of trying to figure out how to hold things. The machining process and operations themselves are simple. It's like you have a block of aluminum, you have a drill, an end mill that is spinning really fast and it's cutting away. So machining um, is um, a subtractive process where you start with uh, kind of like, a, you can think of your uh, sculpture and you have like a block of marble and you're like removing material to get uh, the art piece out of that. Uh, whereas like 3D printing, it's additive. So you have to start with nothing and it's more like uh, working with clay, you start building. So you're subtracting. So it's an art of, okay, how do I remove material from this block of aluminum to make it be a CubeSat? And a lot of it is trying to figure out how to hold it. Uh, that's like a lot of the thinking. It's like, how do I hold this thing? So that when I'm cutting away material with this, or like the computer uh, that is controlling the, C, the, the end mill, cuts away material, doesn't make the, uh, the end mill break or doesn't um, make the piece of aluminum go flying or just completely explode and have, uh, have all that be safe. Um, of course, you, you always have to be safe about these things. I cannot stress that enough. Safety is like the most important thing uh, in, in, in these manufacturing processes. Yeah, yeah, not only that, and I know um, like one, one thing that I think we talked a lot about in our, in our meetings was, um, you know, when you're just designing the structure, you really have to be designing it with the thought of machining it in mind. Um, because if you design something to be way too complex, then, when you go to machine it, it's just not, it's not going to work. Um, th th that is really important. That is correct. You have to think about uh, when you're, you need to have the design intent uh, and okay, think about what capabilities do I have? Uh, do I have access to a three axis uh, CNC or a four axis, five axis? Because the simpler you can make it, one is like the cheaper and easier to manufacture it is. And so you can put like very small radiuses and really tight tolerances, but those make the price and the complexity of the manufacturing process go up significantly. So it's always important to think when you're designing a uh, structure, you need to think not only about, well, the geometry, but also like the people who have to put it together, the machines that have to uh, make it, the materials available, the, so it's a, it's a lot of different things you have to keep, keep track of. Were there any other lessons learned along the way as, as you guys were actually machining these? Maybe uh, just in terms of, because part of it was also using mills as well to um, refine a few, some features or, or finish a few things out. So I don't know if, if there's anything that you wanted to share there. That, that is correct. Uh, what we ended up doing, uh, and that's because we had li the limited access to the CNCs. Um, so we had mills at ASU, but we didn't have the CNC mills uh, at ASU. Uh, we did a, a say 95% of the geometry of the shapes of the uh, parts, the rails and brackets of the structure uh, with the CNC's. But there were some last operations, some finishing details that we did by hand uh, with a hand-controlled mill uh, back on the ASU campus. Uh, lesson learned is something that we decided early on 
was to make not just one structure or two and an unit model and a flight unit, but to make more. We were not mass producing them, but we, were, we made spares of every part uh, where we could. And that's really valuable. It's like, because if one breaks, say you only have two rails or one, one rail, and if it breaks, then you have to like start, start again and it can set your schedule back and it's like a huge risk. So when possible, make spares because things break. Um, handling is important. If you handle a part incorrectly, you can bend it and then it doesn't work anymore. And so it reduces the risk a lot and makes you more comfortable and allows you to work faster if you can have spares. And with CNCs, it's like, I, would, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but I, I'm tempted to say like 80% of the work or like the time in making one part is in figuring out how to make the first part and like figuring out the process, the, the workflow. So once you make like one part, say um, the, um, the camera bracket, and once you have one of them done, the amount of work to do the next a second one is just like 20% of the original work because you just have to like click, like place a block of aluminum there, click play, and it will cut it out for you. Of course, that's not the case for a completely handmade thing. But for a computer, uh, for a CNC made part, uh, they, you can really make, like you can almost start mass producing them. So with Phoenix specifically, we made four uh, pieces of each bracket. And uh, so we use one as a engineering model and then one as the, uh, the flight model, but then we also have spares. And this also allowed us to do something a little bit like what you would see in um, high school, um, higher skill manufacturing, uh, we started using a little bit of binning. So we said, okay, we have four units. What we can select, we can take measurements and say, okay, this one is slightly out of spec. Second one is like slightly out of spec in different ways, but maybe we can fix it. Uh, by having spares or these extra ones, we were able to like, and Alvin had like different, slightly different issues. We were able to select the one that worked best. So it's like, just like by statistics, having more means like you're more likely to have at least one of them that works. Yeah, that was also, um, I think another important area was, so So we also incorporated, so we machined the brackets, and but then for actually like screwing things in, we had to incorporate helicoils. Um, and so if any of the helicoils became damaged or, you know, un unable to get out or the component was, was ruined in the process of actually doing that, then you, you know, like you were saying, you do have more to, to go back. So you know, not only with machining, but, you know, really taking it all the way through like flight assembly and, and making sure that that component's going to be robust for, for putting the whole thing together is, is really important to have multiple. And you, you mentioned the helicoils and that, that is something we decided to incorporate helicoils into our machined components, the aluminum parts. And you, you don't need to have helicoils, but it, they, they're really useful, especially if you're doing a lot of assembly and disassembly on an aluminum part, the threads can be damaged easily. And if you have a galled uh, damaged thread, then you cannot put the screw back in. That's like no, no bueno. But if you have helicoils, stainless steel helicoils, um, that are like essentially little spring, uh, spring, spring keys? What are they? Oh, oh, the, um, like, are you thinking of a slinky? Slinky, where, yeah. Yeah, I, where I, like I you, those things that you roll down the stairs and it's, it's fun <laughs> to like see them go over each other. Yeah. Yeah, so you have like a little slinky, like a little uh, spring that has like the right threads and it's like the stainless steel and that goes inside of the threaded hole. And that's like very robust. Um, it's like you can put in a screw in and out like, I don't know, many more times before you damage the threads. 
the problem is that installing helicals that are like small, like an M2.5, M3, can be a major pain. But uh, it's, some, it's something worth considering if you're going to be putting in a screw more than a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, I remember trying to put those in and like I couldn't figure it out. And then I remember Vivek, you just came in and you you were putting a helo coil in and you just did it on the first try. <laughs> I was right. like, what? I mean, <laughs> How? I, I think this was this was much after, uh, you know, because I think before like Jaime was me doing all of these, uh, installing all these helic oil, um, you know, himself. And I still remember like oh, I walked in one day and he was installing these and I was like, oh, these, these are cool. What are these? And he kind of explained me and ran me through it. Little did I know, like about a month from there, I would be given the task of trying to do that myself because those things are really tiny. And if you sort of miss, uh, you know, if you don't use the uh, tool uh, correctly, it, uh, it either breaks it or, you know, worse, you just lose it. And it's, it's often a pain uh, to even go back and try and find them on the floor, which is really difficult. <laughs> oh no, yeah. Okay, so going off of that, I remember, so like, I mean, we bought so many of these from Mike Bastercar. And I remember we were like finishing putting some final ones into um, the, the flight brackets. And we managed to get all of them in there. There were as many helicoils as we need. And right, right. we had, we had, one left to do and that one was like one that we had lost on the floor like the only reason we were able to get all of them in <laughs> was because Jaime you'd like found one on the floor <laughs> and we just put it in but yeah I'm pretty sure it tiny. was the one we lost when Jaime was explaining what he calls for <laughs> Probably. and you found it towards the end <laughs> yeah but like I don't yeah I didn't I just could not get those those things in there. It was yeah. that. Those things are a pain. Yeah. The the M two point five helicals. Those are those are a pain to get inside. Uh, seriously, to any person considering them, uh, you're gonna like. I spent so many hours installing helicals because just like they they break all the time. When you go to M three, even though it's only a half millimeter uh, difference, they are like significantly easier to put in. Uh, and you know, talking about screws, something really important is like screw management becomes real. I was like, I think Phoenix had something around 150 uh, screws in total. And like, you need to keep track of those. Yeah. And like, you want to make them like consistent. You want to make them all M2.5 or all M3 or like whatever you're using Imperial, then make them all the same um, when possible. It's not, it's not always possible because if you're using uh, off the shelf hardware that some other company built, they're gonna put their own different thread for whatever reason that doesn't match what you're using for X reason. So, but it's important to like consider, like try to make them all the same. So like you only need to get one set of like uh, tapping tools or one set of helicoil installers because you, you, those things are expensive. Like a helicoil installation tool can be like uh, hundreds of dollars yeah. and you don't want to be getting like more <laughs> and you don't want to be having like, it's, it's a complex enough process already. So in any way you can simplify it, do uh, take advantage of that. Yeah, talking about screws it sort of reminds me of one another issue that I think we faced towards the end. Uh, you know, the screws basically getting worn out to the extent uh, that we could not get them out. <laughs> yeah, that so, that was a terrifying. Yeah, so I mean, just just as you keep track, like just as you manage screws when you're designing it, it's important to manage what screws you've used and which screws yeah. are completely new. That sort of brings us to a very important question uh, as to 
what, what do we do to prevent this? And I think I would direct that to Jaime if I can. I think we use hex screws and that, that's usually considered very resistant to stripping. But uh, I don't know if like Phillips screw head or is something which is better or if there's a better version or is there something to do with the torque? Yeah, oh, sorry. So real, just, just before you forget about the torque. Um, so the, the torque values that we used were actually, they're just like standard values that you find online for a specific screw size. Uh, we were using metrics, so we used the, the torque value that was closest to like an M2.5 screw, but for you know whatever whatever English screw was was very similar to that. So yeah, in, in that case, maybe we got it a little bit too tight. We had an electric torque wrench, so it wasn't like it would beep at us when, when we got to that torque value, which was really convenient. But maybe we did get that a little bit on the higher side. But yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll let you con continue with that, Aimee. I think in the ideal scenario, um, before you're doing uh, this assembly and using the torque wrench for the first time and with this torques and screws, and you, have, you want to do them, like at least a person or the team who's like working on those things, they have to be familiar with those uh, to prevent that type of thing. Uh, Strip screws are dangerous uh, for regular reasons you, you mentioned. It's like you don't want to be like using a Dremel to cut into a slot into them to remove them without that screw. Uh, that's like, uh, that's a really bad scenario. I think it can be prevented by one, being really careful about the torques. Uh, like beforehand is like taking the attention and like, okay, I'm going to try this and experiment with them beforehand. And also being careful with the tools you use. It's like you want to make sure um, like you're using the, the right tools and the, the right screws, the right torques. And then um, you don't want to like be reusing screws so much to the point where they become worn and it's like almost like a danger to, to use them. And I'm sure there's um, other like points that I may be missing here, but I was like, at least like what I can think of right now. I think one practice that we adopted during the flight assembly, um, Vivek, and this was actually like something that like you were like, we need to do this, um, right. is when you're actually screwing it in, if you feel the torque wrench like slip even slightly, like remove that screw immediately and replace it with right. something else. Because mm -hmm. that, I think that's how a lot of stripped screws ended up being in there is that we weren't paying close enough attention to, um, uh, to that, you know, that kind of slippage feeling. And, um, you know, when it came time to, to back them out, we, it, we weren't able to do that. And, and when you try to back it out, you know, you just make it worse and eventually your hex becomes a circle and uh, you die slightly inside. So. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's true. I think, and we, when we started adopting this practice, I think we did manage to replace almost like 30 to 40% of the screws. And that was quite substantial to the extent that we had to reorder a bunch of them uh, just to make sure that we have enough at hand. Right? So even if there's a slight slippage, you immediately replace that and you know, say like, nope, I'm not dealing with that anymore. I've got a new uh, screw to replace that. Yeah, and you know, I think when you're ordering screws, I mean, it may, it may end up being a lot of money, but it is, it's so worth the investment to just make sure that you have ample more than you think you do um, because stuff like this happens. If you don't give yourself margin like that, 
then that can really hurt you in um, in a really bad phase of the project. I think the one more thing that we did, uh, you know, uh, adopt as a practice during flight assembly was the fact that uh, we did not. So, so since we had a couple of different uh, assembly routines that so we were basically assembling it many times. Uh, we what we did was that we did not, uh, you know, torque up every screw to its maximum limit that we were uh, supposed to, we sort of kept it at like a good 70%, 80% range so that, you know, it, it gave us the fit that is required, but uh, not force it enough so that, you know, we would risk uh, another. I think, I think most of it was uh, stemming from that bad experience that we had and we tried to limit it as much as possible. I'm sure a lot of it was overkill, but I think it's better to be safe in this situation than having to deal with a strip screw. Yeah, uh, that that was that was one of the reasons we did that. And another was was um, I think just the way that it was the structure was designed too. Because so we had the rails and then the panels, and if you screwed the rails in too tight, then the tolerance with the panel would be a little bit you know like it wouldn't entirely fit in there. It was really hard to to, to press in. So it was important that. Um, you know, when, when you're assembling everything that you're, you're taking that into account as well. And you're leaving it, you know, at least enough tolerance in there before you actually like fully tighten everything down or else it may be difficult to actually fit your components together. So, yeah. I think the moral of the story is that the screws can screw you. <laughs> <laughs> true. But Sarah, yeah. you, you make a good point about the, the tolerances um, on our CubeSat, the tolerance on the outer dimensions, which is like on the rails as the most important because that's really the only part of your CubeSat that touches the outside of, uh, or like that touches the, um, the deployer. So that in reality, that's all that matters. Like the, the, the deployer doesn't really care what are you, you could be the shape of a bird or something, as long as you have the rails, because that's the only part that is making physical contact. And so, the tolerance requirement uh, there is for it to be, well, it has to be like super flat, um, but like the important thing is that they have to be, say from edge to edge, at least for like a one U, two U, three U, it has to be like a hundred millimeters, plus or minus 0.1 millimeters. And that, that's a, a tight tolerance uh, when you have like all these components and electronics on the inside. And you start seeing that many, like the smallest of things can like make you deviate from those tolerances. And like the smallest of things, like they can make the structure bow out like by the slightest bit that it falls um, outside of the tolerance. The torque you put on this on the on the screws and this like little like almost like specks of like particles that can be like seen like if there's like a particle that sat in between two flat parallel planes that can be pushing your structure out. It's like you need a lot of attention to detail in there. Yeah, it, it was it was important that we let that like we kept track of that too because even the number of times that that you assemble like with with your engineering model and then this also goes back to like why it's important to machine multiple uh, parts when you're practicing the assembly procedure. I mean, you really should practice actually torquing things down to to get used to that because you know and and for students who are developing cubesats, you've never done this before, and so just like doing practice runs of everything, it really gives you a good insight into what the flight assembly procedure is going to be like. So if you're going through that multiple times, then yeah, you know, it, it can be possible to, to bend apart. We did, we did have a ye old bendy rail, uh, mm -hmm. I think from, from all of these. So, yeah. 
Um, I think one one thing that I wanted to to add on tolerancing and um, Jaime, I think you could expand a bit more on this is when you're doing these practice assembly procedures, like do your measurements as you go. Kind of going back to this theme that that we've said before, where CAD's not always entirely correct. You know, even even with even with using CNCs, which are incredibly precise, like but we still found one area that we needed to correct, which was with the ADCS and in, in meeting the NanoRx tolerances. The rails were designed such that it you know it kind of like held the ADCS in in place. I don't know if you want to expand more more on this then, <laughs> but. So what happened, uh, th what you mentioned is that we did the assembly, I remember, and I was very excited. It was like my first time assembling this CubeSat with like the real ADCS unit, the like the real like engineering model, like machine rails with the like anodizing and all that. And it, looked, like, it just looked legit. It's like, wow, I'm holding like things that are going to go to space. What does this mind blowing? And then I said, oh, let's measure it. I grab my calipers and it's like 100.5. And like, oh my, like, it just broke my heart completely to see like that measurement. It's like, well, what's going on? And it's like, it shouldn't be 100.5. It should be like 100 or like 100.05. <laughs> but one of the uh, big mistakes we identified later uh, early on is that there was a small, very, very small interference in between our inner radius of the rail and the ADCS. So the ADCS, it, it matched the CAD pretty well, actually. It was like very accurate dimensionally. Um, but something that happened is when, when you're machining a part with a CNC, um, you can only machine radius that are as small as the, the end mill you're using. And it happened that there was like a very small interference between one of these radiuses and the ADCS. And that led to like the structure bowing out to be out of spec, like significantly, but almost like half a millimeter if I remember correctly. And the exact number was probably a little bit different. Um, so what we had to do is, well, this is take it apart and actually file um, those little radiuses to try to make them as much as a right angle as possible, at least to the point where that interference was removed. And sure enough, um, that did alleviate um, that improved the situation and made us closer to the um, to meeting the spec. There were like many little things we had to fix like that, but that was like one of the big ones. Well, tolerancing pretty much wraps up our discussion on the structures design, but join us in the next episode of The Art of Space Engineering, where the discussion will be centered around flight integration and delivery. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting this podcast. Don't forget to follow this for future updates and share these episodes with your friends who might be interested in the content. For more information on Phoenix, check out the project website. And if you have any questions, please feel free to get in touch with us. And on that note, I shall leave you with a ridiculous, useless fact of the day because I kind of drew blank on a witty outro for this one. So, useless fact. Sometimes, sloths mistake their own arms for tree branches and fall. So... If you really want to stand out at parties, you know, take that one and stick it in your back pocket. Well, there you go. I guess that's the, uh, the extent of my creativity. That's great. Okay, goodbye.